So for those of you that have been along for the past few weeks, you'll be aware that we're currently going through a series called The Desert and the Parched Land. And every week we're looking at a um, passage of scripture that introduces us to a character who goes through a really difficult time. They find themselves maybe in a, in a literal desert. We read about um, Ruth and Naomi and the struggles that the family had a few weeks ago um, when they, they actually had to leave their home and go out into the desert and go to Moab and try and find relief from the, the, uh, the, the, the famine that they were suffering from. Um, and last week we looked at Elijah and King Aram, the, most, the worst of all the kings that Israel had. And we saw how God can work in the huge, big, high-level political situations that are going on in the world. And at the same time, he cares deeply about each individual one of us. So whatever circumstances we're going through, no matter how low and insignificant we might be feeling at any given time in the big scheme of things, we know that we have a God who doesn't see things like that. We have a God who sees our own personal dilemmas as being just as important as the huge, big, save-the-world programs. And he can deal with both of them at the same time. So we are never, we are never insignificant to God. And this week, well, this week we, we, meet, um, we meet another story from the book of Kings. This time it's from two kings. Last week we were in one kings. And this comes from 2 Kings chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you or if you want to grab a pew Bible or anything, then um, you'll find 1 and 2 Kings. They're in the Old Testament. And you remember a few weeks ago, I sort of explained the, the simple way of understanding a little bit about the Old Testament. You go through the first five books of the Bible, and that's the, the law, where God gives the law to his people. And we read about some of the great Old Testament characters like, like um Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, you've got, um, you've got Moses in there. And then we see the Israelites being given the law and we see this cycle of the Israelites obeying the law and being honoured by God and then having their heads turned and being distracted by what's going on around them in different people groups and thinking, hey, we'll have a bit of that, we'll have a bit of that. And they, they turn away from God. And so God says, oh, look, I told you, I told you in the law that if you do this, if you turn away from me, there are consequences. And so now oh, you've got to suffer the consequences. I didn't want it for you, but... That's what, I've, that's what I've written in law. I told you, and you've disobeyed. And so the Israelites suffer the consequences, and then they think, oh, no, we're really suffering. We need to come back to God. And so the cycle begins again. And we see this going through. And we, we found Ruth in the book of Ruth, and we found, we found, um, we found King uh, Aham in the book of Kings. And here today we find Elisha, a prophet called Elisha. Elisha followed on from Elijah. Elijah we read about last week, and Elisha was sort of his heir. So, 2 Kings chapter 4. We read this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a, a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. 
Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied to her, There's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. It's another story of one of God's miracles. This is not the sort of miracle that is remembered as often as the parting of the seas when, when thousands of, of Israelites left Egypt. Because this isn't a big headliner. This isn't one of the ones that, that saves thousands. This saves one. But this is a miracle that shows us of God's love for us. If you come here today and you're feeling a bit miserable, a bit low, you're feeling a bit unloved, a bit deserted, if you're feeling like you're going through the desert and the parched land at the moment and you can't see the next, the next oasis on the horizon, the next bit of good news, the next lift that you need, then this morning, hear this story and remember that God cares for you that God is with you wherever you are right now God is there with you so here we meet uh, the wife of a man who came from the company of prophets now the company of prophets if you cast your mind back to last week you'll remember that um, that King um, Ahab he, he, he was he was he was angry Elijah had said to him, if you don't stop persecuting God's people, there's going to be, um, there's going to be a, 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 a drought, a drought throughout the whole land. And sure enough, this drought came and it was um, afflicting the whole of his kingdom. People were dying. It was awful. And rather than, rather than say, ah, oh, looks like there is something in this God of Israel after all, King Ahab said, right, I want to find Elijah. He was, he was the one who made this happen. He's to blame. And so he, he, sends, um, he sends bands of, um, of soldiers. He leads one, and a guy called Obadiah leads another one, and they go out into the hills. They're looking for pasture. They're looking for, for somewhere where they can find water, but they're also looking for the one who they think is responsible. And before that happened, we know that Ahab had been slaughtering God's prophets. When we read here in this week's story about the company of prophets, <clears throat> the sort of the ethnic cleansing we read about last week, these are the guys that were targeted. And you remember Obadiah? We read about him last week, and he's a bit of a hero. He took a hundred of God's prophets, and he found two caves, and he sheltered 50 in each cave. And putting his own life at, at serious risk, he gave meat and, and food and drink to each of the bands that he had in those caves, 50 men in each to preserve some of the company of prophets. Now, some traditions hold that this is the wife of Obadiah that we read about here. I've not come across any convincing evidence, but it's an interesting link. But certainly we know that this, this was a man, the man who has died, leaving behind a widow and, and sons, two sons. We know that he was from the company of prophets. And so the company of prophets, whenever we come across a prophet, they... They rely on charity and goodwill. They don't have a lot. They are not kings. They don't have palaces. They don't have wealth. 
They live on faith. And when we truly live on faith, we don't build up our own resources. We trust in God. It's a day-to-day faith exercise. And that's what the prophets practiced in their lives. And so, of course, being married to a man from the company of prophets, you weren't marrying into wealth. You were marrying into faith. This family have been have suffered tragedy. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know whether he was a victim of Ahab or whether this was another cause. But we do know that this, the wife of the man from the company of prophets, cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. So a prophet, Elisha, was God's prophet, the one that Elijah had had chosen to carry the mantle. This is... He was a servant of God. And so this man here, when the wife says, your servant, my husband, is dead, it just reminds us of of the position that this guy would have held. He was a servant's servant. He was a servant to the servant of God. A servant's servant. This was a a poor, meager existence. So when she cries out, your, my, my, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take away my two boys as his slaves. Under the, the law at this time, it was a common thing. If, if, if a man died and he owed, and he had nothing to pay the debt with, his, his widow had nothing to pay the debt with, then the children, the children were taken and they would work on his land until the debt had been paid. And so this is not some um, evil, cruel persecutor that is coming. This is just the way things were. This was just another example of the culture and the, the harshness of the life that was lived in these days. And so there's no way that Elisha is going to turn around and say, right, okay, come, uh, hide in this cave, let me give you safe, uh, safe passage out of this land, let me take you elsewhere, let me look after... That would have been breaking the law. He says, well, what can I do? What can I do? There is nothing that I can do. He says, tell me, what have you got in your house? She says... Your servant has nothing there at all. I've got nothing. Except that she did, didn't she? Of course, we know, she goes on to say, she had a tiny jar of olive oil. But the fact that she was married to a man from the company of prophets... The fact that in her desperation she she goes to Elisha, she calls out to Elisha shows that she's got faith that God can do something. She has faith that she's going to call on God, on the man of God, the prophet chosen by God, and he's going to be able to do something. But it doesn't come in the way that she expects. You see, this woman is gripped by fear, understandably. If her two boys were taken, then there'd be no one to work the family land if indeed they had any family land. If they didn't have family land, then the boys, she wouldn't have the boys to send out to work, to do anything, to earn money. Being a widow in Old Testament Israel was not a nice place to be. It was not a nice situation to be in. 
She's desperate. She's terrified. She knows that potentially lying ahead of her is a long, slow, painful death. And so she is gripped by fear. Fear is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because fear is the sort of thing that it doesn't come in, in small quantities, in small measures. When we are fearful of something, and I'm not talking about, I don't know, fearful of it being a bit chilly tomorrow. I'm not talking about trivial fears. I'm talking about this type of fear. When we're faced with a situation, you think this situation is too big for me to handle. I, I, I can only see one thing happening here, and it ain't good. I'm going to struggle, I'm going to suffer, I cannot overcome this fear. Fear says, it's you against me, and I'm the fear, and I'm in your head, and I'm so much bigger, I'm dominating every last thought, I'm stopping you sleeping at night. You wake up in the morning, I'm there. You open the, bo- the, the cupboards, get the cereal out, I'm there. You're in the middle of a conversation with your your spouse or your children or your parents or or your friends or your neighbours or your colleagues and straight away, I'm there and you're not concentrating. I've got you. I'm dominating every aspect of your life. I'm eating you up bit by bit. And fear has that effect on us. And fear is a horrible thing to have hanging over us but we all go through it at some point. We all experience it. And fear says there is only one outcome here. That me, at my worst possible extent, is going to be the truth for you. This widow, she calls out to Elisha because fear has got her. The only future she can see is that her husband is dead. Her two boys are taken, and she has nothing. We see fear elsewhere in Scripture. We see it with Moses. When God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, and tell him, set my people free. And Moses quite reasonably says, whoa, 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 no way. No way, Jose, I am not doing that. You got any idea? This is, this is Pharaoh, the commander of armies, the ruler of Egypt. This is me. I, I've got a, I run a sheep herding business. I look after a few sheep for other people. I've got, I've got nothing. God says, what's that in your hand? And he says, well, it's my staff. God says, okay, you've got something then. Chuck it on the floor. Let me show you what I can do with that. Moses sees what God can do, and bang, Moses is transformed. And Moses goes on to become a leader of God's people. We see it with, with Peter, fishing on the shore, uh, just off the shore of the lake. And Jesus walks up. Jesus is teaching people, and he's had a really frustrating night, Peter. He's been out in his boat, and he's had the nets out all night, and he's been fishing for years. He knows what he's doing, but for some reason, this night, he's caught nothing. And it's been frustrating, and it's been demoralizing. There's no income today. And Jesus wanders up and says, can I borrow your boat? And he says, yeah. 
He says, cast out your nets a bit further out. Really, I've been doing this all night. Caught nothing. What's the point? There's nothing in there. I've got nothing. Jesus says, you've got a net. Chuck it in the water. So Peter does. A short time later, Peter's having to call over other boats to come and to help take the catch in because there is so, so much that's been caught in those nets. Because he did have something. He had an empty net. Or the boy who, who turned up in a crowd of 5,000 people on a hillside to listen to Jesus. And Jesus, one of the disciples says to Jesus, look, we, we need to feed these people or send them away. We've got no food, so we haven't got an option. We've got to send them away. And Jesus says, what have we got? Well, we've got nothing. We've got, we've got a kid's packed lunch, a bit of bread and a couple of fish. Jesus says, so you haven't got nothing then. And before you know it, there's 12 baskets of leftovers after 5,000 plus people have, have, have filled their bellies and are so full they can't eat any more. Because they did have something. God can take the smallest, smallest thing that we have and he can use it. And he does time and time again if we trust in him if we put our faith in his provision, in his power. It's interesting in this passage, isn't it? The instruction that Elisha gives, as soon as he hears that the widow has a small amount of olive oil in a jar, Elisha says, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Go and all the, the, the empty receptacles, the things that they haven't filled, go and just gather them all, gather them all, get them all in, get them all in. Don't ask for just a few, but then go indoors, take you and your sons, shut the door behind you. Now, we like to talk about getting out into the community and, and opening our doors and, and sharing God. And of course, that's right. That's, that's the great commission in action. Please hear me right on this. I'm not saying that we should stop evangelism and mission or anything like that. We should absolutely be doing it. But sometimes there is a time when we're feeling low, when we're feeling empty, when we're feeling that we personally need God to speak to us and to remind us of why it is that we then go out and spread the gospel message. Sometimes there is a time to, to shut the door and say, Father, this is just you and your empty vessel. I'm not feeling full of faith. I'm not feeling like you're really answering prayers at the moment. I'm not feeling like I've got anything to give. I'm not feeling that I can contribute to my church. I'm not feeling that I can go out and inspire others or share my faith. I'm feeling, I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling empty. Well, I can guarantee none of us will feel as empty as this widow would have felt. We will all have something. But in those moments, in those moments, we might look at our, our paycheck, our car, our TV, our house. We might look at all the material things that, that the world encourages us to, to fill our lives with, and what we'll see there is a load of empty jars. They, will, they won't be fulfilling. They won't offer us anything. And that's a miserable place to be. And so there comes a point where we have to say, 
Lord, this is what I've got. I've got all these empty things. God says, well, look, that's a nice telly. I'll have that telly. Okay, Lord, it's yours. What about your car? I like your car. Okay. Lord, take my car. Okay, you're going to give that to me? Yeah. You're prepared for me to take that? Yeah, I truly am. It's hard when we start giving things to God. What about your house? Are you prepared to trust me with your house? What about your monthly paycheck? Are you prepared to trust me with, your, with that? Are you prepared to let me into every empty room in your house, in your life, in your heart? If we can say honestly, yes, then God does this amazing thing. He says, you've only got a tiny amount of oil. Okay, well, let's just start filling. God doesn't leak as much as me. He starts filling. And he says, okay. Say when. And we say, it's all gone. Lord, I'm empty. He says, no, you're not. He says, don't let that fear tell you that you've got nothing left to give because I'm telling you. I'm telling you. There is always, always more. If you put your trust in me, there is always something more to give. Every time you empty yourself out, I'll give you. I'll fill you. I'll never leave you completely empty. I will keep flowing and flowing and flowing because you are my child. I have created you. I love you. And so sometimes you might say, look, I've given everything, and now, Lord, look, I'm truly empty. I'm, I'm, I'm totally empty. I've got nothing more to give. God says, really? That might be true, but I've got more to give. And so before we know it, God just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and filling and filling and filling. And it might not be in a way that we'd like. We might pray our prayers for a bigger house and a bigger paycheck and for, for, for an end to conflict and for world peace. And we might be praying for all sorts of things and think, oh, God never answers my prayer. No, he, he, he might not do it the way you'd like. And that can be so frustrating. But he never, he never looks at you and says, you're empty. I'm not going to bother filling you. You're not worth it. He always, always comes back to us and says, you're empty, you're calling out to me, I've got something for you. I've got something for you. I love it when, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, let's just pause there. Paul is writing this in prison. Paul has been put in prison. It's not a nice place to be. It's not a happy state of circumstances. Paul, at this point, had every right 
to be saying, God, I've given you everything. I've given you my life. I've turned to you. I've put my life at risk for you. I've preached your word. I've been obedient. I've done what you've called me to do. And now look, what have you done for me? I'm in a stinking, cold, horrible, dark prison cell. I'm terrified. I don't know what the future's going to hold. You've abandoned me. You've left me here. You've cut me off. Paul had every right to have that attitude, but instead he writes to the church in Ephesus, saying as a prisoner for the Lord, so I'm doing this for God, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that calling look like, you might say? Well, Paul gives us the answer. He makes it absolutely clear. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does it look like to still be godly, to be feeling empty, but knowing, trusting, having faith that God will fill us? Well, when we feel empty and we don't have God, when the world out there feels empty, it's a it's a demoralizing, depressing, hopelessly, hopeless time. It's awful. And we see so many people battling with that and struggling with that, with a, a, self, a lack of self-worth, a lack of self-esteem. It's a dreadful situation to be in. But we have a hope in Jesus. And so the, the calling that we have is to trust in God regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves and to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to show love, and to practice peace in all circumstances. If Paul can do that in, in a, writing in a prison cell in Ephesus, then we can do it here in Norwich in the 21st century. We can practice that, those things. And they sound so simple, so simple. But when we're truly put to the test, they're anything but simple. But it's the hallmark. It's the hallmark of the Christian faith within us. It's the hallmark of God within us to have the faith. I might be feeling empty, but I know that God is just waiting to fill me up. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to be like. But when he does, I'm going to empty myself out again. When he fills me with, with hope and with goodness and with excitement and with passion... I want to go and I want to share that with those that I meet. And I want, to, I want to speak to people. I want to share God with people by showing these qualities that Paul brings out here. I want to make that something that I can share with others, that I can share my enthusiasm for my God to give others a light in their darkness, to give others hope in their hopelessness. You see, these empty pots, these empty vessels are all around us. There is a whole world full of empty vessels. And God is just waiting for us to, to go out and to collect them and to bring them to him. And for him to say, hey, look, there's another one I can fill. There's another one I can fill. God never stops but he's given us the job of going out there and, and collecting them all. We are the widow, if you like, 
to go out and to, 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 to be obedient to the calling of God, to collect all these empty vessels, to bring them to him, and to, to say, Lord, Lord, please, keep pouring, keep filling, keep going, keep doing this. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because our faith is on something so much stronger so much stronger than our own strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It is eternal. The presence of God so many people in this country have walked away from God, have turned their back on him, have said, I can't see him, so he's not there. But scripture tells us, yes, he is. Yes, he is. And we see the evidence of God working in our lives, in our country, all the time. Sometimes we, we can pray for something and weeks and months go by and then God answers the prayer and we've forgotten about it. We don't give him the credit he deserves. One of the most important things for me when I came to faith, someone said, keep a prayer diary. I said, what's the point of that? And they explained what it was. I'd never kept a diary before. I've never really been a, a journaler or a diary keeper. But I did it for a month. And I wrote down every day the things that I prayed for. And then at the end of that month, I went back and I ticked off all the prayers that had been answered. And then six months later, I went back again and I ticked off the rest. And I saw God working. And I thought, yeah, prayer works. And every time I've done that exercise since, I've found that it's a wonderful way of reminding myself the way that God answers prayer, that God works, that I might come to God in prayer and, and feel like an empty vessel, or I might give him an empty vessel. And it might not be an immediate filling of that vessel. I might pray about a job situation, not now, obviously, but I might say, Lord, I feel like an empty vessel in this. Or it might be a, a, a friendship, and I think, it's, I've, I've tried, I've tried, but it's, it's, it's just gone a bit cold. It's an empty vessel, and I don't know how to fill it. It might be something I'm battling with. It might be something I just feel completely incapable of doing, a task that's been given to me. It could be any number of things, but you say, Lord, here's an empty vessel. Or it might be, Lord, there's a family member, or there's a friend, or there's a neighbor, or there's a colleague, and they're an empty vessel. And I, I've tried to talk to them about you, and I've tried to, to fill them. It's not working, Lord. The lid's on tight on this one, and I haven't got the bottle opener to get it off. But if we give them to God, we do it in faith. That maybe not immediately, it might be that, that years go by, and we don't see that vessel filled. It might be that we lose touch and we never see that vessel filled. But we have faith that God, the unseen, the all-powerful, will honor that prayer.
we have the strength of faith that says, not in my power, not in my strength, but in yours, in yours, Lord. So just to finish off, we, we see the widow obediently going back into her house, setting out all the jars, and when they're full, she says to her son, bring me another one, but he replies, there's not a jar left. Every jar we brought is full. And that's the point where it stops flowing. That's the point where God says, okay, everything's full then you've got enough. And she, she goes to Elisha. She explains what's happened. What's happened behind those closed doors. What's happened in the privacy of their own home. She goes to him. She doesn't shout it from the rooftops. She goes to him and explains. And he says, go and sell the oil and pay your debts. In other words, he says, your sons, your sons stay with you. They can work the land, they can look after you. You're not facing that bleak, awful, terrible future, that desert and that parched land that you thought you, you were heading into, the only future that you could see. That's not your future now. Sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what's left. You see, God provided for her in a way that she would never have imagined she would never have foreseen that tiny bit of oil, so insignificant that she said, I've got nothing. And as an afterthought said, well, apart from that tiny bit of oil. Well, God takes that afterthought and God used it to change her life and to give her a future of plenty. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus. We are all empty vessels at some point in our lives. And we must all recognize that and recognize that the only thing that can fill us up, that can fulfill us, that can satisfy us in a meaningful and lasting way is the Holy Spirit the spirit of Jesus. So wherever you are this morning, my prayer is that at the end of the service when you've had a cup of tea or coffee, had a chat with people and you walk out those doors, you're feeling a hope that perhaps wasn't there this morning. A joy, an inner peace, a warmth, a reassurance that comes through knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your presence with us. And Father, we thank you for Jesus because he has walked in the world and he knows what it is like to see fear. Father, by sending your son into the world, you demonstrated how much you love us and how much greater is your love for us than any fear 
that we might encounter. Lord, we thank you for the widow that we've read about this morning. And we thank you for the way that she, she had her faith rewarded. She had her fear taken from her in a miraculous way. And Lord, whatever fears we might bring to you this morning, Lord, we pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you will help us to put that fear to one side, that you will help us not to be dominated by that fear, but instead to allow our faith to grow to such a size that it dominates the fear, that we have an unshakable faith in your power to change our circumstances. Father, we thank you for the hope we find in Jesus. We thank you for the everlasting, unquenchable provision of your Holy Spirit. Father God, we pray that we will each leave here today feeling refilled and refreshed with that spirit. And that as we go out into the world, whatever, whatever we face this week, Lord, may we face it with a desire to pour out your Holy Spirit on the people that we meet, knowing that we will never be empty because you will keep the oil flowing. So bless us, we pray, Lord, now as we worship you in response to your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
So do remember the Portuguese fourth anniversary service celebrating that later on this evening at five o'clock this afternoon, rather. Um, join us for tea and coffee. If you're new to us, please do come and say hello. And wherever you are, whatever you're doing, be blessed this week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our church family. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. And Lord, thank you that we know that you have called each one of us to go out into the world and to make a difference for you, to build your kingdom brick by brick, grain by grain. None of us are empty vessels abandoned on the shelf, but each and every one can make a significant difference and play a part in your plan for our world. So Father God, bless us, we pray, as we go about your work this week. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless.